How's everybody doing? It's great to see all of you today. Um, I, I did not, some of you know this, I did not grow up going to church. I didn't actually become a Christian until I was 19 years old, which was three and a half years ago. And uh, no, um, uh, I didn't grow up going to church, and, uh, but I do remember the first time I went to church. Um, I was five years old, and I went with my grandmother uh, and all of my Star Wars toys. I do remember that very vividly. Um, it was like 1978, 1979, right, right around there. And uh, I had this, if you're old enough to remember this, if you remember when, like, when the Star Wars toys originally came out, there was like this Darth Vader carrying case. Like you'd open up, it was just Darth Vader's head, and you'd open it up, and it would have all of these, um, uh, all the, you could fit all of your action figures in each of, each of the different slots that it had. And so um, I, uh, I, I took it with me. Because I figured it could keep me company while I was in, uh, you know, Sunday school with, uh, you know, and because uh, my grandmother would be in her class and I was going to be in mine. And um, and I don't know why this is the case. And sometimes it's a weird thing as to why you remember certain things about your childhood, why you don't remember other things. But I vividly remember the lesson that was given that day. Um, and the lesson was on the importance of generosity. And uh, I was five. And uh, but they gave me this lesson on the importance of generosity. And um, after church, I remember sitting on the steps um, of this. Uh, I was sitting on the steps of the church, wait, and my grandmother was talking to some people there at the church, and I was playing with one of my Star Wars toys. In fact, I have a picture of one of them. Um, this is uh, Greedo. If any, how many of you remember Greedo? All right, yeah, there you go. That's good. Uh, now, several of you did not raise your hands, which concerns me. Um, it really does because I, I actually. Uh, I've met, I'm amazed by the number of people that I've met that, that have not seen Star Wars. Like, Star Wars consumed my entire childhood until I was like 15 years old. Uh, and so I'm shocked when people haven't uh, seen Star Wars. Uh, in fact, my former assistant on staff uh, had never seen Star Wars. And it, I'll be honest with you, it hindered our ability to work together. Um, because what would happen is, is that, you know, she'd come in for something, you know, we'd be talking, I'd make like a Star Wars related joke. She wouldn't laugh. She'd say I was old. And uh, then I would cry a little when she left. And it was very awkward for me. And, um, but anyway, if you're not aware, his name is Greedo. And um, he doesn't make it that far. Uh, he get, makes it till about, you know, when they go into the, uh, what's called like the Star Wars bar. It's called actually Mos Eisley Sta- Spaceport, but we'll leave that for another time. That's another sermon. Uh, but he gets blown away for messing with Han Solo in the beginning of the movie. But I had this Greedo action figure. And what I was doing with Greedo is I was just throwing him up in the air. And I was throw him up in the air and catch him. I'd throw him up in the air and catch him. Well, one time I threw him up in the air, he did not come down. And uh, I was very, very, very concerned. Uh, and, and you know what happens like when a child loses one of their toys. I mean, this happens like every 20 minutes when I'm home with my daughter and, uh, and or my son. Like they lose one of their toys. Like, they start hyperventilating. They start kind of freaking out because they can't find their toy. And uh, they're like on the verge of crying, but they don't want to cry because they know it's probably not like a crying issue, but they're right there on the edge. And so that's kind of where it was for me when um, out of nowhere, this kid that was in my class comes over to me and um, he had found my Greedo. Uh, action figure and he gives it back to me and um, it was it was amazing it, and, and then I don't know what it was something in that that Sunday school lesson had stuck with me or, or something but I just remember this so vividly um, that I remember him giving it back to me and then kind of having this process that 
Like he found it, he gave it back to me. And then um, I, I did something that was like against every natural bone in my, in my little body at that time. And I actually gave the kid my Greedo action figure that he had found that I thought that I had lost. And um, it was like, it was the first generous thing I had ever done that I can remember in my life. And, uh, and here's what I'd like to tell you, is that this is how the story ends. Is that, um, you know, that set me on a different track in life. And, um, you know, when Jesus and Star Wars collided, that that set my life in a different motion. And I, you know, lived this incredible life of generosity. And, you know, I was given away bikes at 10 years old and whatever. And I, that, unfortunately, that didn't happen. Um, I, I almost immediately regressed to my normal selfish self right after that. Um, and and um, because when I was growing up, like most kids do, most kids find it tough to be generous. I found it tough to be generous. And as I grew up and became an adult, most adults find it tough to be generous. So did I. And, um, and, and the reason is this, is that none of us are born generous, right? When a child is born, it is not born a giver. A child is born a taker. And the hope is that when a child, a person comes to know Jesus, that the hope is that they experience the joy of generosity. Because that is the key to living the blessed life. Now, what we're going to spend our time in this morning is um, in 1 Timothy chapter 6. But what I want to do is kind of give us a little bit of a running start before we get to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Um, I want to take you back to the first century. um, To a scene that I really wish I could have been part of. Um, It is Paul's farewell address to um, the church at Ephesus. Now... The reason why this is important is because Paul um, spends 18 months establishing the church at Ephesus. He planted the church at Ephesus and then he leaves. About 10 years later, he will write the book of Ephesians to the church at Ephesus. And then later on, um, this guy named Timothy will be the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And then when we uh, were looking at first Timothy, we have to understand it within the context of the congregation that he's the pastor of that Paul is writing to this young pastor named Timothy. Well, having said all of that, um, Paul spends 18 months with this group of people and he's going to say goodbye. And so he spent this time investing in people, training up leaders, um, you know, just helping this congregation get started. And then what happens is, is that um, he's leaving. He's going back to Jerusalem. And so the leaders walk with him down to an area that's called Miletus, which isn't all that far to where it's just where he's going to get the, um, the boat, which is going to take him back to Jerusalem. And so what takes place is, is that in Acts chapter 20, which is where this story is found, um, they accompany him there. And then Paul is going to share a few last words with them before he leaves and they are never going to see him again. He's going to write them a letter, which is the last real contact that they're going to have with him. And then Timothy will take over the church and all that. But I want you to think about something for a minute. What would you say to some friends um, whom you believe that you would never see again? I mean, I want you to think about that for just a moment. You're never going to see these people again. I mean, and what is it that you would say to them? And Paul says two things to these leaders, which I find personally very fascinating and is going to lead into what we're going to talk about. This morning, it's in your notes if you've got those handy. Uh, Here's what Paul says to them. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's gold or silver or apparel. Yes, you know that these hands provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
And then he says goodbye. They pray together and he says goodbye. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. He only tells them two things before they pray together and he leaves. He says to them, he says, remember that you're a sinner that's saved by grace. So I want you to teach grace, walk in grace and be built up by God's grace. And then he tells them this in the tail end of that. And then be generous because it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Two things. Believe the gospel and live lives of radical generosity. And you might think, like, those are the last two things that he's going to say to them. I mean, why? And it's because these two things are actually connected. That if you really believe the gospel, you can't help but be generous. Because the heart of the gospel is God giving to us, right? Because the Bible says that God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten son. So to walk in the gospel is to reflect the giving heart of God. But to live out the gospel and live the blessed life that we're talking about here, we are going to have to kill Greedo. I mean, you've got to get rid of greed. You've got to get rid of Greedo if it's going to happen. Because here's why it's so important. Because every time I kill Greedo, every time that I reject greed and embrace generosity, listen, then greed has less and less of a hold on me. And the same thing is true with you. And when it doesn't, when greed doesn't have a hold on me and doesn't have a hold on you, that's when we have the ability to experience the blessed life. As you know, as was mentioned before, we're kicking off a brand new series of teachings. It's called The Blessed Life. And before we really get into this and get kind of knee deep in all that we're going to talk about, what I want to do is kind of give you an overarching idea and define the blessed life according uh, to what the Bible teaches. The blessed life, it's in your notes, you can write this down, that the blessed life is this. The blessed life is when God supernaturally acts on my behalf. It's when God supernaturally acts on my behalf. It's when God works in my life and does things that I could never do for myself. But listen, what happens, that happens when I obey God. The blessed life does not happen as a result of disobedience to God. It happens as a result of honoring God. And so in this case and in our message this morning, we're going to talk about honoring God uh, with, with our finances. But what I want to do is, and this is the thing that's really important to me, is that we could actually spend a lot of time talking about uh, the mechanics uh, of giving and the mechanics of being generous. And uh, we could talk about the when to give and how to give and where to give and all that stuff. But what I want to do is, and we can talk about that maybe later, but what I want to do, which I think is maybe even more important, is really maybe get beyond that surface issue and really maybe peel back some of the layers and get a little bit deeper and talk more about the root and talk more about the heart. And talk more about um, the, the attitudes and, and intents uh, that, that we have. Because what I want to do in this, in this first message is really talk about our attitude towards money. Because here's the thing. If our attitude towards money changes, everything changes. If our heart towards money changes, everything changes. If you've been into a bookstore lately, and especially since the first of the year, if you've been to a bookstore, here's what you've probably noticed. That all like the financial books are all in the front now. Like by, you know, July, they'll all be in the back in like the bargain section for like two ninety five. But in the beginning of the year, they're all up front. They're all full price because everybody's talking about, you know, I got to get my finances right this year. I got to get out of debt. I'm going to start putting money away and all that. And here's the thing. The thing about those books is that most of them have incredible information for us. They have incredible information. And um, but there's one thing that that these books can't do. The thing that they can't do is they can't change our attitude towards money. That's why these books, have you noticed they just keep coming out? 
Right? If you notice that nobody wrote like the one book on getting out of debt and then it's like everybody just goes to that book because you know what happens? Like if someone reads the book on getting out of debt and then some people do it, most people don't. And then it's like, well, maybe we'll, maybe we'll come out with another book and that will help everybody. And then the next book comes out and you know what it says? It just says the same thing the other book said, but it's just newer. And then so and here's what happens is that for some of us, we just keep reading the same books hoping that like some more information is actually going to change our heart or change our attitude in some way. Um, but the, the, the most that it can do is really just do some uh, offer some behavior modification. But see, because if you notice this, um, I have learned in my life that dealing with money is about 20 percent education and about 80 percent behavior. Um, because have, maybe you've noticed this. If you've ever read a book on finances or money or getting out of debt, whatever, have you noticed that you've never been shocked? Like you've never read the book and be like, can you know this guy? He says that if you save money, it's a good thing. That's a mind blower, right? Nobody's saying, you know, do you know, you know, right? Nobody's actually reading that and being like, whoa, I've never heard that before. But instead it's like, yeah, he's seen a lot of good stuff. Like, you know, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I should. Yeah, that's right. That's it. So you read the book and you're like, and most of the time, right? There's some, there's some little tips and tricks that you didn't know. But for the most part, you're reading stuff and you're like, you're affirming or agreeing with that, which, which you're reading. And that's, that's good. But, but the issue is this. If that's the case, why, doesn't, why don't things change? The reason why a lot of times things don't change is because we're just dealing with a topical surface issue and we're not really delving down to the most important thing, which is the heart and which is our attitude. Because nothing changes in our lives when it comes to money until our heart and our attitude change. You see, and in the section of 1 Timothy, and if you haven't turned there, I'd invite you to, 1 Timothy chapter 6, that's what Paul is going to drill down on. He's going to peel back the curtain. He's going to, you know, pull back some layers and he's going to show us how our attitude towards money affects our lives. And it either invites the blessed life or it blocks it from taking place. It's going to be first Timothy chapter six, starting in verse six. Here's what we read. It says, now godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out and having food and clothing with these we shall be. Content. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the first thing that I want to share with you for your notes. And that is that money cannot provide contentment. It cannot provide contentment. That's why we kind of we get on the rotisserie wheel of wanting a little more, a little more, a little more. And every time we obtain a little more, it doesn't actually satisfy what we wanted, what we thought it would satisfy. So we just keep kind of going after the carrot, thinking it was going to bring us a little bit more. Um, about two months before Christmas, we told Mia that Christmas was coming. My, this is my daughter who's almost, will be four at the end of the month. And um, we told her, we said, hey, we have this Christmas list, and so you can just let us know what you want, and we'll put it on the list, and we'll see, you know, what happens as, as far as you, what you get for Christmas. So we started a list. So we started this list. Now, Mia was very excited about starting a list. What we didn't expect was for, my, for Mia to literally ask for everything. Um, because every time she saw something, she would say, I want it. So she would be watching a program on TV and she would say, um, you know, Papi, can I have that for Christmas? And so I would say, well, just put it on your list. And um, she was under the impression that anything that went on the list, she actually got. So um, when I would say put it on your list, she'd go, yes, because she thought that that meant like that meant like order on Amazon.com like that. She, she connected those two things. Um, and uh, and so what happens is, is that. But eventually, you know, we're going on, we're getting closer to Christmas. And I guess she got tired of asking for everything individually because one day she's watching a show and, uh, and she's, there's something that's on, on TV. And she turns to her mom and she says, Mommy, I want everything that's on TV. 
So whatever's on TV, get that for me. And so that was kind of like the, we had to talk to her, that's not exactly the way it works. Um, and, uh, but now, now here's the reality of it, is that, you know, like, we do too, right? I want everything that's on TV. Yeah, so do we. Um, but the thing is this, we, we just tend to not be that honest about it, right, as adults. And um, because, once again, if we're going to talk about the heart, I mean, let's be honest, we're going to talk about the heart. And um, if we're going to, in our heart, we want more because we believe that more is going to make us happy. Now, here's the problem with that line of thinking. And I, I had it in my life at one time, and sometimes I can, you and I, we can all fall trapped to it. Now, the, re- the problem with that line of thinking that more is actually going to make me happy is because if we just go by past experience, it didn't work, right? Because there's stuff that you have right now. There's stuff that I have right now that we said, if I have that, I'll be happy. And then we got it. And we were happy for like an hour. And then there was something else that we wanted that we thought would make us happy. And so then we got that. And then that we were happy for like an hour. And then we just kind of keep going. And, um, and I, I, see, I do these crazy things, you know, because... I love my children. And, uh, you know, because what we do is, you know, if you drive down, you drive down Miramar Parkway and you turn to 57th, you can get on the turnpike right there. And I like going that way to get the turnpike because it takes you right by the dump. And, um, and you say, well, where's the dump? It's the only mountain in South Florida. And uh, it's just filled full of garbage. And um, what I like to do is um, I like to roll down the windows as we're driving down there so that my children can smell all the garbage. And uh, and so I roll down the windows and I say, all right, kids, take a big whiff. And they're like, Bobby, it smells. And I'm like, yeah, you know what that is? What? It's all the stuff you couldn't live without a year ago. And uh, and, and then you decided you didn't want it. And then we threw it away. And now like vultures are swarming around it. Uh, that That's where it lives. And you know what? I have to roll my windows down and take it in, too, because it's the same thing that happens. It happens with them. It happens with me. It happens with all of us. And, and, and the thing is this. The experience that we tend to have with money and possessions in many ways is the similar experience that addicts have with drugs. Um, now, whatever an addict's drug of choice is, after a period of time, the dose or whatever the drug is, it isn't quite enough because the, the, the experience, the high that they had isn't quite enough. And um, so they either start taking more or they start they find something that's a little bit stronger to now fulfill the need because, once again, they're, they're chasing a feeling. Money and possessions are just like that. Uh, we chase more because we'll believe we'll be content if we have the next thing. And then if it's not that, then it has to be a little bit bigger and it has to be a little bit better for us to get the same feeling that we had in the beginning. And listen, it's the behavior of an addict. And that's why Paul, the first thing that he says in this final section of First Timothy is, he says, here's the deal. Godliness with contentment is great gain. It's those two things together that produce the blessed life. Godliness, walking with God, knowing God, being satisfied with what God has had, and contentment is great gain. Now, contentment is an interesting word because sometimes when we say, how do you feel? Oh, I'm content. We, we make it, sometimes content in, in our culture means I have just barely enough. But contentment in, in the Greek language that Paul would write is, um, contentment means being full. I mean, you're full. Like, let me explain it this way. Um, how many of you, like, after you had your one plate, or let's be honest, two or three plates at Thanksgiving, um, you were, like, really full? Well, you know, I just asked you, like, wow, I was really full at Thanksgiving. And then I took some time, and I breathed, and did some exercises, and it, like, you know, and then I ate dessert. And um, now, let me ask you this. Now, this is for those of you that want to be really honest. You don't have to be really honest. 
but you can be really honest by show of hands. Um, how many of you were so full after Thanksgiving that you unbuckled your pants to create extra room? Anybody there? Okay. Several of you. God bless you for your honesty. Uh, now, let me ask one more. How many of you were so full after Thanksgiving that your one thought was, I wish I wore pants with an elastic belt? Anybody there? All right. No, nobody, nobody missed that. I guess I'm the only one. Um, now, listen, if you understand that kind of full, then you understand the word contentment that Paul is using. Because that's what it means to be content. It means to be full, not lacking anything at all. In fact, uh, contentment is one of the keys to the blessed life. How do you become content? It's by realizing that you're already full. It's by recognizing that the stuff that I want isn't, that I desire isn't actually going to bring me the, the fulfillment and the contentment and the satisfaction that I want, but it's actually my relationship with God that brings that. And that's why he says that it's godliness with contentment that's great gain. And that term great gain literally um, means great wealth or great riches. Um, Paul would say it this way in Philippians 4 in your notes. He says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Listen, one of the reasons that many people are very dissatisfied with life and very frustrated with life is because the things that they were hoping would bring satisfaction and fulfillment and happiness didn't come through. And here's the thing that's important for us to know. Once again, if we're going to really drill down to the heart of the issue. In the heart of the matter, if the things that we desire, if nothing in this world can bring you the satisfaction and fulfillment that you've been looking for, maybe it's because you were created for another world. You see, you and I are not just physical creatures. We're spiritual beings who have physical bodies. And that's why the physical can never totally and completely satisfy and that's why, listen, the thing that's important for us to note is that the stuff that we really desire isn't even really the stuff. It's the significance behind the stuff. Like, when you think about it, like, do people really want the new car? I'm sure you want a car that's maybe a little nicer than you have. But when you think about it, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know what I'd love is a $400 car payment. That just would bring joy to my life. No, nobody says that. But what they want, they don't really want the car necessarily. They want what the car represents. It represents freedom, it represents youth, it represents power and control, and, and all of that. People don't really want the big house necessarily, but what they really want is what it represents. It represents security and success and accomplishment and stature and prestige. Do they really want the gadgets, right? Because, oh man, I'd love the gadgets, but you know the thing that happens with the gadgets is always a new one that comes out. And then you just feel like a loser for having the old one because you haven't gotten the new one, right? Like, imagine, if you got the first, the first iPhone that came out, you were like, you were awesome for like a month. And then the next one came out. And then you didn't get the upgrade. And then, like, could you imagine someone with an iPhone 4 that shows up with the guy who got the first iPhone? They'd be like, oh, dude, I feel so sorry for you. Like, that's what people say. Like, people say, see the guy with the original iPhone and like, I'm sorry. You know, I'll pray for you. You know, I mean, so they feel bad for that guy. And, and why? Because, once again, it's not so much the gadgets that people want. It's what it represents. It's being relevant. It's being important. It's being wanted. And see, we desire the things, but what we don't realize, if we could look at um, our lives and our desires from a spiritual perspective, what we would realize is that what we really desire is the spiritual substance behind the things. That's why the actual items don't really satisfy us. 
because those desires were only meant to stir us up, uh, to stir up a desire for another place because we were people that were created for eternity. And see, that's why money can't provide contentment. That's why possessions don't provide contentment because the things that money buy don't fill us up. It's cotton candy. I mean, you can take a big hunk of it and you put it in your mouth. You say, I got a big bite, but in just a moment, it disappears. Paul goes on in verse 9, and here's what he says. He says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which many or some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. If you pause there and give me your attention. Um, the second thing I want you to note in your outline is that money creates a painful illusion, a painful illusion. It's this idea that Paul says that it's like you're going after it, you're going after it, you're going after it. And the, the desire is actually leading you the wrong way. Now, let me explain it this way. Uh, my daughter, who turns four at the end of the month, um, like most four-year-olds, is in the imaginary friend phase. And um, except my daughter's is a little bit different. And by the way, imaginary friends are okay if you're four. If you're 40 and you've got imaginary friends, you probably need to go talk to somebody. All right? And uh, they have medication for that. And um, but but here's the thing. My daughter doesn't have just one imaginary friend. She has an imaginary class. Uh, it is, she has, it's like 10 friends and she's the teacher. And um, her her class consists of Dora, the Explorer, her friend Boots, uh, uh, Diego, Alicia and uh, this new show that she's been watching called Dino Dan. And so Dino Dan is part of the class and his little brother, whose name escapes me right now. And uh, they're all in her class, which is all fine. Except, you know, the other day, uh, Mia and I had to go to Publix. And when I say Mia and I, mean Mia and I and her class. And uh, we all had to go to Publix. And so I open the door. She gets in the car. And, um, I, and I close the door. And so I go to, to buckle her in. And she says, Bobby, you left my friends outside. <laughs> well, maybe they want to. No, no, no. Oh, Bobby, please, 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 please. Okay. I get out of the car. I have to open the door. Mia, tell me when they're all in. Okay, Bobby, we're good. Then I close the door. Then I get in the car and I pull out of the driveway. And she says, Bobby, I say, what? She says, you didn't buckle my friends in. And I say, Mia, we're just going down the street. I think it's going to be okay. Plus, we have airbags. What's airbags? Don't worry about it. You'll learn about that later in life. And uh, so then we get to Publix. And she says, Bobby, we need two carts. And I'm like, there's no way. How are we going to push two carts? Your friends need the exercise. And... Um, and she says, OK, so then uh, she sits in the cart because she sometimes doesn't like to sit in the car when she's with just with me. She likes to sit in the car because then she her and I can talk. And um, so then we're talking. And so I just say, well, stay, I'm going to park right here. And we're going to get some I'm going to get some stuff I'm in, like the produce section. I'm getting some. And she says, Bobby, I said, yes, she says, you're stepping on my friends. <laughs> and I said, me, I want you to tell your friends to get out of my way because I'm busy. <laughs> and uh, and she says, OK, Diego, get back in line. And she does. She says that. Get back in line before Bobby hurts you. And uh, and I'm like, well, it's a little more extreme than I expected, but effective nonetheless. Now, here's here's the just. <laughs> and, you know, that's only one like mild story. There's so many more. I just don't have time for. Um, now, here's the thing is that we usually don't hear about illusions that get hurt. Now, here's what we normally do. We normally create illusions and they end up hurting us. That's the way life normally works. 
And as, this is what Paul's talking about. Listen, as adults, we create these illusions in our minds about what money can do, what riches can do, what possessions can do. And it sets us on a path that destroys the very thing that we're seeking to find. Now, here's the thing that I want you to note in, in this passage, because sometimes we can read this section and be like, yeah, this is just for rich people. It's actually not written to rich people. It's actually primarily written for people who aren't rich but want to get rich. Now, let me just say this. There's nothing wrong um, with there's nothing wrong with with having wealth. There's nothing wrong with desiring to do better, to be more successful. There's nothing wrong with wanting to provide for your family um, better and provide a better uh, standard of living. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But the problem is, is that when our heart is not right concerning money and when our heart is not right uh, concerning uh, what money can do, because when we create an illusion about what money or riches or finances can do, they begin to ruin our lives for the fact of us trying to get it. And listen, you don't have to have money for it to ruin your life. Money can ruin your life if your heart isn't right by its presence or its absence. If your attitude towards what money is, uh, isn't right. Now, now, I want you to think about this for a minute because I think it's important to note. Um, because Paul writes in this, you know, that those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful lusts, which, uh, w- which drown men in destruction and perdition. I mean, those are all very strong terms that Paul, that Paul uses. And it all begins from this desire to be rich for the wrong reason. Now, I want you to think about why, what some of the most common reasons as to why people want to get rich. And what are the most common reasons people want to get rich? People say, well, it'll give me more peace of mind if I'm, if I'm more successful and I have more money. But here's the thing that we under, I, I, I don't understand, is that we say, well, it'll give me more peace of mind if I were rich. But do you know that statistically speaking, people that have affluence go to counseling and therapy more than people that don't? What? Think about it. I want more money. Why? So I can have peace of mind. But the people who have the money actually go to go to counseling and therapy because they don't have peace of mind. All right. Well, I just think I'd like to have money because people would like me more. Well, but have you noticed that if you ever talk to anybody of affluence, they would tell you that money tends to complicate relationships. You ever loan a family member a hundred bucks? Notice how like 15 minutes later it got weird. Why? Because money complicates relationships. And then that family member like starts to avoid you. And then like a year goes by and you're like, dude, forget the money. It's all right. And then they, they still won't talk to you or they're like, I, I got to go. You know, anyway, so it just gets weird. Why? Because money complicates relationships. Well, if I made more money, I'd like myself more. You know what happens? One of the things that end, end up, you know, people of affluence end up sitting in a counselor's chair is because their self-doubts actually increase with their wealth. Well, I think I would feel more secure if I had more money. But actually what happens is except people with a lot of money stay up late worried because they have so much to lose. So, so what's the deal? The deal is, is that if I set money up to be the savior of my problems, it creates an illusion that money was never created to deliver. Money is not a savior. And here's the thing. I know we're in church and we all like Jesus is our savior and we just sang songs about him and all that. And I, I get that. But when we walk out these doors and we're like living our lives the rest of the week, many times, I mean, if we're honest, we would say that we look to money and we look to having a little bit more as the possibility of if I could just have a little bit more, it would solve all of my problems. And if we believe that, then we're actually asking money to be our savior, which it cannot be. You see, Jesus would say it this way. It's in your notes. He would say, watch out and be on guard against all kinds of greed, because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. I want you to think about that. I've been thinking about this verse all week. And and here's the thing. 
Jesus talked about so many issues, right? But he never looks at one sin specifically and says, you've got to really watch out for that one. He talks about lust and sex and adultery and all this stuff, but he never says, watch out, don't let lust get you. He never says that. He just says, this is what happens when you lust. This is like, let's take it to its logical conclusion. This is where it leads. But he never says, watch out, this is where it's going to take you. You know why? It's because if you're involved in lust or, you know, pornography or adultery or any of that, you pretty much know that you're involved in it. Right? It's not taking you by surprise. You, you know you're there. But see, there's something... The, the deal with greed is that nobody thinks they're greedy. I mean, think about this. I, I, I mean, I, in all of my years... I mean, I'm, I'm going on almost a decade and a half as, uh, as a pastor and, and as a minister. I've never had one person come into my office and sit down and say, Pastor, I need counseling because I'm greedy. I mean, that's a pretty impressive streak, I think. Uh, that like never one person has come in and they just say, uh, Pastor, you've got to help me. I spend too much on myself. You, get, you know, I, I, I keep ramping up my lifestyle. I need help. Never. Not one. You know why? Because that's the subversive nature of greed. Nobody actually thinks they're greedy. Even greedy people don't think they're greedy. Gordon Gecko doesn't think he's greedy, right? Anyway, that's an old movie uh, reference. Uh, you know, um, it's Wall Street, by the way. Anyway, we're moving on. And um, but here's the thing, right? But nobody thinks they're greedy. But the problem is, but Jesus says this. That's why we've got to be on the lookout for it, that there are some telltale signs of greed. And you've got to be on the lookout because it begins to lead you down a road that you don't want to go. And that's why Paul says the people who love money end up destroying their lives. And, that, and then he says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, please note something. And I, this is really important to note. He does not say that money is the root of all evil. Most people quote it wrong. Um, but because, can I just tell you this? Money is an inanimate object, right? I mean, that, that's like, you know, it's like saying bubblegum is the root of all evil, right? Bubblegum is just bubblegum. Money is just money. It's an inanimate object. But it's the value that we place on it. That's why he says it's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. You see, it's the root of all kinds of evil when people are, uh, what people are willing to do for the sake of getting wealth. When their heart is not right and when their attitude towards it is not right, it derails their life and leads them away from God if their heart and attitude isn't right. You can't live the blessed life if you believe that money is the answer to your problems. And that's why he says that those who are greedy for money have strayed from the faith. Now, why does he connect those two things, that um, you're either walking in the direction of money or you're walking in the direction of God? Because it's not just a matter of having more. It's an issue of worship. It's an issue of what we believe is our Savior. And that's what Paul's going to talk about next. I'm going to have you skip down to verse 17, and here's what he says. He says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Now, here's the last thing I want to share with you. And point number three, and that is that money is a servant, not a master. It's a servant, not a master. Um, these last verses are directed to those who are rich. Uh, the first section is those who want to be rich and maybe might not be. This is for those who actually are rich. Now, you might be thinking, oh, good, I can just kick back, 
while Bob kind of rails on those guys for a while. Now, let me just let me just tell you. Let me, let me ask a question if I can. Um, how many of you um, own a car? Can I ask you that? Oh, wow. Look, a lot of us own a car. Do You know, only eight percent of the world owns a car. Like eight percent of the people in the world own a car. We're doing pretty well. All right, let me ask this, and I'll raise my hand first because I do. My wife and I both have a car. Can, how many of you have two cars? You're a two-car family. Oh, we're loaded. We're so loaded. I mean, we are, like, filthy rich, right? And, see, we don't think about that because we're, we compare ourselves to, like, the, everybody else on our block. But the truth is is that if we were to step back and look at all the, like, all the six billion people on the planet, I mean, we're filthy rich. There's this website you can go to um, that you, like, you input... Uh, and I did that this week, and, and you input um, your income, and it tells you where you stand in regard to the rest of the world. It's actually called globalrichlist.com. Now, it, it, it advertises a bunch of other organizations, which I'm not sure about, but it does have like this little global rich calculator, which I found very interesting. So here's what I did. I took what is the average income here in, in Miramar, which is $50,000, um, and I said, what, is, what, what would an average person here in Miramar, here in South Florida, um, compare to the rest of the world? I put in $50,000, and here's what it came up with. It said, you are in the top 1% of income earners in the world. Now, think about that. I don't know if you ever felt good about yourself. This is a good time to feel that. You're in the top 1% of income earners in the world. And um, now, th- that's pretty rich, right, compared to everybody else, right? Like 2 billion people on the planet live on less than $2 a day. So, uh, you know, considering... You know, the, the, everybody else, we're, we're, doing, we're doing pretty well. Now, now that we've established that we're rich, all of us, right? Um, if you say, well, I make less than that. Well, I mean, if you're in like the thirty-five to $50,000 range, then you're still in the top 2% um, of the world. Still no reason to feel bad about yourself because you're still like, you know, light years beyond where everybody else is. Now, here's what Paul says to all of us rich people. He says, don't be arrogant because you have money and don't trust in money. Instead, trust God and learn to do good so that you can be rich in good works. The kind of riches that really matter. Um, Jesus would say it this way. This goes back to this idea that money is a servant, not a master. In uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, it says, No one can serve two masters. Either, uh, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll, be destro- or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't, you can't serve both. Now, here's the challenge that we all experience, because even though I said that, that all of us are rich, none of us or I would say the majority of us don't feel rich. Because once again, we're looking at everything that we need. We look at everybody else on our block, and we feel probably very average to how everybody else on our block or on our street or in our neighborhood lives. But see, what happens is that we have this, the challenge that we all experience is that we have a tendency to ramp up our lifestyle so much that we end up strapping ourselves financially. So nobody, even though we're all technically rich, none of us actually feels rich. We would all say, I, 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 don't know, I, might, I know the stats might say that I'm rich, but I actually feel pretty strapped. Well, the, listen, the reason is, is because we continually keep ramping up our lifestyle in such a way that it prevents us from living the blessed life. And, and so, listen, I want you to think about this. I mean, I can only imagine God in heaven as he listens to us. There's six billion people on the planet right now. We're all in the top 1% for the most part, and, and we're praying, saying, God, you've already blessed us with so much, but I keep ramping up my lifestyle so much that even though I'm in the top 1%, it's still not enough. And um, it, listen, so here's what I want to do. I, I want to give you three things. I want to teach you how to live the blessed life um, 
And this is just three things, but really by way of introduction that we're going to talk about uh, in this series. Three things that I believe will trigger the blessed life uh, in your life. And here's number one. Number one in your notes is this. Start tithing. Now, here's the interesting thing about tithing. Uh, and if you're not aware of what tithing is, tithing is what Christians do. We take the first 10% of our income and we actually give it back to God. Because the Bible says that the first 10% actually doesn't even belong to us. In the Bible, God says the first 10% belongs to him. So when I actually tithe, I'm not even really being generous. I'm actually just giving back to God what already belongs to him. But here's the thing that's interesting. Even though it may not be generosity and I'm just giving back to God what's already his, this issue is really what triggers the ability to be generous. Because if I'm robbing God, I'm certainly not going to be generous to anybody else. Because, listen, we have to recognize that everything that we have comes from him. The skills that you have to be able to do the work that you do, the breath that's in your lungs that allow you to live and be able to, to go to the place where um, you make what, however much you make and uh, provide for your family however you provide for your family, um, that all comes from him. And if that's the case, I, I mean, think about it. I mean, I mean, what would happen if we lost the skill or lost the use of, of our arms or our voice or our eyes or whatever it is that we use to, to, to provide? Listen, we're fragile people. And we'd have nothing if it weren't for the grace and mercy of God. That's why the Bible tells us this. It says, what do you have that you didn't, uh, uh, what do you have that God hasn't given you? If everything you have is from God, then why boast as if it weren't a gift? Listen, the first step to living the blessed life is to stop robbing God and to give God what is already rightfully his. That's where it begins. The second is this, um, and this is a real practical one, and that is get around generous people. Get around generous people. Uh, a real good friend of mine, and um, I, I unfortunately don't get to spend enough time with him, but um, he is literally the most generous person I've ever known. And, um, you know, there's an amazing thing of what happens whenever I spend time with him, and that is that being around him makes me more generous, and it makes me want to be more generous because he has modeled for me what a generous life looks like. And, um, you know, when he and I, if we get together for lunch or we're somewhere and we go out to dinner, I mean, him and I have to fight over who's going to pay the bill. Um, I don't know if you have any friends where you have to actually fight over who's going to pay the bill. Uh, I know like some friends, uh, right, like right when they know the bill's going to come, they get a mysterious illness and they have to go to the bathroom for a while and they're there for like 20 minutes and then they come back like, I'm sorry, I had to make a phone call. And like, oh, I thought you had to go to the bathroom. Oh, yeah, that too. You know, and it's like, well, what happened? Oh, but I took care of the bill while you were gone. Oh, wow. Hey, I'm sorry about that. Or they do the reach. Do you know what the reach is? The reach is, is that when the bill comes, they kind of like very slowly reach for their wallet. Like they're like living life in slow motion. Like, oh, and then, you know, you're like living life like in normal speed. And so you kind of look at it and you take, you know, your, your money or your card out and you put it in there like, oh. Oh, say thanks, man. Yeah, you know, because if, if, if I waited until you got your wallet, I'd be like six o'clock. And, uh, and you know what I mean? So they do the reach so they can feel like they tried, but they didn't actually try because they were hoping that maybe you'd, you know, you'd do it. And, um, and, and, and listen, the thing that happens, you know, listen, if you hang out with, with stingy people, I can promise you this, you're not going to get more generous. You know, there's a quote that I read in a, in a book that I read a long time ago. Uh, the guy's name was Charlie Jones, and uh, he wrote, he, he said this, he said, you will be the same person you are today in five years, except for the people that you hang with and the books that you read. And man, that, that rocked my world when, when I read that. And I thought, what is it? Why? Because what I'm taking in, it's the influences that are in my life. 
You hang around with generous people, you know what's going to happen? You will become more generous. And you know what's amazing about hanging out with really generous people? Is that they're not talking about the stuff that they're buying. They, they aren't. You know what they're talking about? They're talking about the good that they're doing. They're talking about furthering the kingdom of God. They're talking about doing ministry and reaching people and, and, and helping people that are hurting. And, uh, and the thing that's amazing about generous people is that when you're generous, um, God blesses you with more. And, you, and it's not because you're actually being generous for the sake and kind of like, you know, God, I'm going to do this. And you know, you know, it's not that. It's you, like because God has saved you because God has changed your life. And because of that, you simply are giving just to model the heart of God who's given so much to you. Because he's given you forgiveness and life and peace and eternity and all that. And you don't give to get that. He gives that to us freely. But instead what happens is, is that we give something to say, God, you've done so much for me. You've given to me everything. Now how can I model that, that kind of life in, 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 in my daily living? How can I model that and show you that I love you in some, in some way? You see, instead... We don't give to get. Instead, we give because God's changed our lives. And when God sees someone who is generous, you know what he does? And I see this happen over and over and over and over again. Is that when God sees someone who's generous, he gives them more because he knows that they're not going to hoard it. But that they're going to take it and they're just going to, they freely receive according to the Bible. And so they freely give. The Bible says this in Proverbs 11. It says the world of the generous gets larger and larger. The world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. The one who blesses others is abundantly blessed. The one who helps others is helped. And then here's the last one. Number three is listen to the Holy Spirit. Listen to the Holy Spirit. You see, many times when it comes to generosity, one of the reasons that we aren't generous is because we aren't listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. We're listening to the voice of fear. Why? Because and here's what, and once again, if we're honest, this is what we'd say. We'd say, I'd love to be generous, but... I just, if I do, I don't think that I'll have enough for myself. When actually the opposite is true. When I listen to the Holy Spirit and obey God's word, I'm in the place to be blessed by God because I'm obeying him. And that's where the blessed life begins. Jesus would say it this way, give and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured out into your lap for the measure for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You see, here's, listen, here, if we were honest, right, here's what we would say, is that all of us have generous thoughts. We'd say, man, I would love to help them. I, I'd love to see that take place. I, I'd love to honor God with my finances. I, I'd love to create financial margin uh, in, in, my, in, in, my, in my life. But listen, the only, generous thoughts aren't what kill Greedo. What kills Greedo is admitting th- that we haven't been generous, and then making a decision to become generous and following it up with actions. Um, I told you about the first time I, I gave at church, uh, uh, the first time I went to church. I want to tell you the first time I gave at church, I'd only been a Christian for about eight or nine weeks. And um, uh, nobody had ever actually taught me about giving yet. I was a very young Christian, but I just felt like I should do something. And so what I did was is that um, I was at home and I wrote a check out. I put it in my pocket and I went to church. And um, the church that I went to had kind of the offering boxes like we have. And, um, and I remember that I walked up, and uh, you can imagine this being the, the check. I, I went and I put it in the box, but I didn't actually let go of, of the check. I just had like half of it was in and half of it was still in my hand. And then I kind of like 
it was like, hey, Bob, this is decision time right here. You know, this is the moment. And uh, so I kind of sat there for a minute, and people are walking in like, what is this weirdo doing? And uh, because I'm standing there, and I just don't, like, let this piece of paper go. And, uh, and I'm thinking, like, I'm going to give this to God. What can I do with it? Give this to God. You know, could use a little extra this. And, you know, kind of going back and forth. And then, um, and, then I, and, and, you know, you have these, like, these moments of, of, like, real clarity in your life. And, um, and I had this, this moment, and, and it seemed like an eternity. It was probably like 10 seconds. But um, I had this moment where as I was holding that check and I hadn't let it go, I thought about everything. And I would say, there's such a young Christian. Like I said, maybe two months I, I, I had given my life to Jesus. And I just thought um, of all that God had done for me, that he had saved me, that Jesus died for me, that he rose again from the dead, that he left this incredible um, place next at the right hand of God, became a man and died for me. And um, he'd given me everything. Change began to, had begun the process of changing my life. And you know what happened? Is that I was able to let go of that check. You know why? Because the check was, uh, it, it lost the hold that it had on me. And that's what began um, the process, because here's the truth of the matter is that our lives will be marked by one of two things, either greed or generosity. And one of the marks of someone whose life God has touched and whose life God has changed is a radical shift from greed to the place of generosity. Where we stop being consumed with self and what we have and what we need and our stuff and the next thing. And we start looking at how we've been blessed and see ourselves as content because God has already blessed us with so much. And now we see ourselves as a conduit to bless others. And the amazing part is, is that when I'm generous, when you're generous, when we're generous, then God is generous with us. Because that's what generosity does. When we exhibit it, God blesses us because of it. But it happens when you kill Greedo. You've got to kill Greedo because the only thing that you lose when you kill Greedo is the hold that greed once had on you. And once you do, you open up the door to the blessed life. Let's pray, let's pray together. God, we want to thank you for that amazing truth. The fact that when we are generous, this thing that we didn't even expect, freedom, is there. And Lord, we thank you for that. And so we pray. I pray for every heart that's here that we would live lives of radical generosity, displaying your heart to this world that doesn't know you. God, that that would begin with us honoring you and even go beyond that as well. We thank you for that. May today be the day that we make the choice. In Jesus' name, amen.